Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We mark this week a grim anniversary. One year since the Russian army, driven by Vladimir Putin's naked imperial ambitions, stormed into Ukraine. Russia pursued and perhaps even expected a quick route. But Ukraine stood strong against the initial Putin blitzkrieg and exposed a series of weaknesses in the vaunted Russian army. Meanwhile, the United States and NATO quickly mobilized to provide billions of dollars in military and humanitarian support. The storylines of the war thereafter have been, first, magnificent valor on the part of the Ukrainians under the inspiring leadership of President Volodymyr Zelensky, Two, the utter implacability of Putin, who has doubled down repeatedly with hundreds of thousands of new conscripts and resorted to increasingly brutal and criminal warfare, even as Russia fought off sanctions and took on the character of a pariah state. And three, the persistent support of the Western world, which to date has provided some $135 billion in military and humanitarian aid, over 75 billion of which has come from the United States. The net effect of the Ukrainians' medal and the West's bounty has been to hold Russia to a near but not total stalemate with periodic ferocious campaigns seeding and recapturing chunks of the country. The war has been fought in almost World War I-style hand-to-hand battle, and each side has sustained huge casualties. An estimated 200,000 Russians and 100,000 Ukrainians killed or wounded. This one-year anniversary is more than a ceremonial marker. The war is at an inflection point, as the Russians reportedly prepare for a renewed offensive, and Ukrainians, with a fresh supply of advanced weaponry, look to launch their own offensive and to take back land that has fallen to Russian control. But the defining feature of the conflict in February of 2023 is a tense standoff and a devolution into a desperate war of attrition. Zelensky publicly insists that nothing less than a total recapture of all territory and Putin's ouster and prosecution for war crimes will make not just Ukraine, but the West safe from Russia. Yet there seems no foreseeable end to the war as long as Putin, who continues to tighten his authoritarian grip on his country, remains in power. To try to shed light on the distant and fairly opaque military, political, and cultural quagmire and analyze its stakes for Europe and the world, we welcome an ideal group of three incredibly qualified guests. And they are Natasha Bertrand, a CNN White House and now Pentagon reporter. She's closely followed the war in Ukraine for the past year. She previously covered politics and national security for Business Insider, The Atlantic, NBC News, and Politico. And in 2021, she was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in media. So nice to have you back and thank your overlords for permitting you, please. Of course. Always a pleasure. Gary Kasparov, a Russian pro-democracy leader and human rights activist, 
He serves as the chairman for the Renew Democracy Initiative and the Human Rights Foundation. But of course, as many know, including a starstruck young man from Pittsburgh, that being me, he was the youngest world chess champion in history, winning the title at an insane age of 22. He's the author of Winter is Coming, Why Vladimir Putin and the Enemies of the Free World Must Be Stopped, and Deep Thinking, Where Machine Intelligence Ends and Human Creativity Begins. I'd like to talk to you for a whole separate two hours about, you know, chatbot, etc., but not today. Gary Kasparov, thank you so much for joining Talking Feds. Thank you for inviting me. And first-time guest, Ben Rhodes, a writer, political commentator, co-host of the podcast, Pod Save the World, and a contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. He served as Deputy National Security Advisor to President Obama, and he's authored two best-selling books since leaving the White House, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made, and The World As It Is, a memoir of the Obama White House. Ben, honored to welcome you to Talking Feds, especially for this episode. Good to see you, Harry. All right, let's just quickly start with a snapshot of the state of play on the ground. I don't mean this as a current events episode necessarily, but I think it really does set the table. So the standard soundbite of the last few weeks is we've moved from what started out as a blitzkrieg, I think you could say, to a war of attrition. Is that accurate? Do you subscribe to that description? And what does it mean exactly that this is now a war of attrition? Well, I'm happy to start on that. I mean, it's accurate for the moment that we're in precisely now, in the sense that there have been ebbs and flows to this conflict, right? And so you saw a Russian move at the beginning that failed spectacularly on Kyiv. Then you saw a bit of a stalemate in war of attrition in eastern and southern Ukraine, albeit with some Russian advances out of the gate. Then you saw the Ukrainians mount a counteroffensive that took meaningful territory, albeit not all the territory that Russia had claimed since its full-scale invasion. And since then, particularly through the winter, things have settled back into this pretty brutal front line that harkens back to World War I, World War II, particularly around Bakhmut in, in Ukraine. And you know, Russia clearly is preparing to try to use its additional manpower from its mobilization, the bodies, frankly, it's throwing at the front line, including prisoners, to just wear down the Ukrainians and hope that their larger size, Russia's larger size, and kind of their nihilism and willingness to kind of decimate Ukraine's infrastructure kind of wears down both Ukraine and the West. And so it's a bit of a precarious moment where right now it's a stalemate in war of attrition, but I think we're going to know a lot more in a few months. And the question is going to be, as both sides mount offensives in the coming months, does the Ukrainian resilience and will combined with additional weaponry from the West tip the scales in the direction of continued Ukrainian advancements? Or does this Russian manpower and pulverizing of Ukrainian infrastructure kind of allow them to inch out more incremental gains and wear down the Ukrainians? And that's the main thing to watch here is that whose offensive theory of the case succeeds in the coming months. Thus far, the Ukrainians have had the better end of the, the fighting. And so the hope, I think, of all of us on this podcast is that uh, it's the Ukrainians with additional support that are able to make gains. But I think the only thing Putin has going for him is that he doesn't care how many lives are lost. 
Right, that's part of his nihilism is he doesn't mind slaughtering his own folks. But a quick follow-up on this notion that Putin can supply endless people and he doesn't care about them. You read sort of different things. On the one hand, there's some suggestion that they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. He's thrown a couple hundred thousand and you read on the one hand, oh, he's got infinite numbers. But then, you know, the British, as a foreign minister said, you know, 97% of the army is already there. Is it the case that he really can, it's like Stalingrad, he can just, you know, have infinite numbers of obviously ragtag, some taken from the jails, etc., conscripts thrown into the battle? Or is he kind of nearing the bottom of even that deep well? Technically, yes. It's Russia's 140 million plus population. But the people are running out. So as, as we know that when mobilization was announced, many left Russia. So some say it's nearly a million. Some say even more than a million, way more than a million. Hard to check because many of them cross Kazakh borders, Mongolian borders. So that's nobody counted them. But judging from the dramatic rise of GDP in countries like Armenia, Georgia, Kazakhstan or surge of the credit card applications in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, you can assume the number is really big. But this reservoir, it's not unlimited because if you look at the demographics, Putin is trying to take recruits from a very poor regions far away from the big cities. When you look at the losses and compare, let's say, Buria, Buryatia and Tuva to the, this, this kind of regions with minorities from Siberia, Far East, so they lost something like 180 men per 100,000. Moscow and St. Petersburg, under five. So Putin recognizes that if he starts, you know, bringing more records from big cities, especially Moscow and St. Petersburg, you know, and body bags will be arriving, God knows, you know, whether he'll be able to keep stability. So that's why, while Putin still has more technically, more people to recruit than Ukrainians, but this, this, the gap is not simply 140 million to 40 million. So I think he's trying to avoid bringing soldiers from big cities that means his numbers are not as impressive. Though, as, as you said, and everybody knows, he doesn't care how many will die. But still, you know, in a modern war, just manpower does not solve your problems. You still need to combine it with firepower and also with some training. Though this war that we are witnessing now, it's some more likely World War I than World War II. There's Bakhmut, many compared to Verdun, Battle of Verdun, with artillery and trenches. But again, it's a World War One, but with the weapons that are far more sophisticated. That's why the moment Ukrainians will receive what they need from Americans and the Western coalition, I think they, they, it will tip the balance. That's a really interesting question. I want to serve up to everybody what the analogy would be, because I think at the outset of the war, we envisioned a sort of modern conflict, maybe lots of high tech weapons, and that's associated with a quick end. For all the sort of geopolitical stakes, it's felt for the last 10 months, like a territorial war, the Middle East model or Iraq and Iran, you know, two bitter, bitter adversaries taking 30 yards and, and 50 yards, etc. I read a scholar talking about the Yom Kippur War, but it doesn't feel like a 21st century war, right? So just to jump in on this one, this style of fighting that we've seen in Bakhmut is exactly the kind of fighting, the kind of World War I trench-style fighting that the U.S. does not want Ukraine to be fighting. And that is why the U.S. has been trying to get the Ukrainians 
to focus elsewhere and learn a new style of fighting that the U.S. has just begun training them on, which is this combined arms and sophisticated maneuver type warfare that the Ukrainians can use to try to basically outsmart and outlast the Russians who are fighting primarily an artillery war and their whole strategy, and this has been the strategy of kind of the Warsaw Pact countries over the many, many years, is just to fire as much artillery as you possibly can at the enemy to try to crumble their defensive lines and try to break through that way. The U.S. is saying, don't waste your men, don't waste your artillery, because by the way, we don't have that much ammo to give you, and start fighting a more modern style of warfare that the U.S. typically fights And in that way, you will have a better chance of succeeding. Let me follow up with just that point. This seems like the pivotal moment in the war that Ben was referring to. Biden goes to uh, Ukraine, incredibly dramatic, and out front saying we're with you to the end. But I have the sense that behind the scenes, they're applying a lot of pressure to Zelensky, and it's sort of just along the lines that Natasha is saying, maybe give up on the big battle in the north, try to quickly grab land in the south, and then armistice time, settle for less than a complete reversal of every inch and a uh, overthrow of Putin. Let me start with you on that, Gary, because I, I think your view remains, am I right, that unless there's a 100% sort of territorial reversal Putin is energized or motivated to keep on in his imperial ambitions. And it has to be the West's plan to have a complete territorial victory and give no quarter. Does that remain your view? I know it has been. Yes, it does. Because this war is not just territorial conflict. Yes, you may say it's imperial war, because yeah. Putin was never made a secret of his desire to revive Soviet empire. Back in 2005, he, he made it very clear by stating that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. But this is also war on principles, on values. Putin doesn't want us to live in a world where everything is regulated by treaties, rule of law, negotiations. He wants to go back to the days of Joseph Stalin or even Ivan the Terrible. It's uh, might is right. And uh, his attack on Ukraine just had uh, this uh, double purpose. One is to destroy Ukrainian statehood and to demonstrate that he was able to restore the old Soviet glory or Russian imperial glory, but also to break the rules of the world that has been formed after World War II, to demonstrate that NATO was impotent, a paper tiger, and to use his uh, quick victory, as he hoped for, in Ukraine, to put pressure on Baltic nations, on Poland, and basically to continue his blackmail, expanding his influence both by military means or by hybrid wars or by buying favors using tons of money that he had, still maybe has, so at his disposal. And that's why anything short of the full Ukrainian victory will be a loss for, for us, for the free world. Granted, those are his goals. But if you think of it in terms of values and not territory, presumably Ukraine's values are not exactly preservation of every inch, but joining the the West, being in that sort of secure blanket. You know, let's stop talking about every inch. Every inch or every square mile has people on it. 
So that's that, that's why when you talk about you know territories under Russian control, you're talking about continuous genocide. What we're seeing in Ukraine is the worst kind of genocide that ever happened because it's online. And it's not just online Russian propaganda, and Putin personally has been bragging about these crimes. Every day you can hear Russian television, oh, we hit another power plant, we actually hit another apartment block. So anything short of Ukraine victory, which includes three things, as we always say, Ukraine must win by liberating all the old territories, also receiving reparations, and international tribunal for war crimes. Which the U.S. has said they are. Liberation, reparation, justice. Anything short of that, it's not complete victory. All right. So your view is quite clear. Anything less than that is a victory for Putin. Ben, Natasha, do you agree, disagree, comments? To bring together a couple of these points, Natasha made a really important point with the military side of this, and then you're raising the political point. On the military side, where Russia has failed spectacularly, right, is they cannot mount synchronized combined arms offensives. In other words, they can't coordinate across geographies. They can't coordinate their missile and air uh, capability with their ground capability. Their military modernization just didn't get to that point. And so that's not what they're capable of doing well. And that was on display to the world in the Kiev offensive. Where they are stronger, relatively speaking, is just grinding out because they're a bigger country with high tolerance for casualties. And so they won a war that is like Bakhmut, that is just this kind of nihilistic, right. down in the trenches, inch it out. I think that Putin and the people around him probably understand that overrunning Kiev is not likely in the near term. But if they can consolidate the whole Donbass in southern Ukraine, they can claim that as some kind of victory. Whereas what the U.S. doesn't want is Ukrainians to be worn down in this war of attrition on a front line in which, to, as Natasha alluded, like we're depleting our own stocks of small arms. I and mean, that's how rapid the pace is here. We're not even able to make our arms sales to Taiwan because we're sending everything to Ukraine. They're using three times what all of NATO's supply is. You know, it's not simply depleting ours. That times three is what they're using every month. That's right. So there's a military conversation. Now, what yeah. the Ukrainians say fairly, right, is, OK, then give us F-16s and give us tanks right. and give us uh, attack helicopters, you know, uh, and then we'll do your combined arms offensive. Now, it's not even as simple as that, because training on those weapon systems, will, particularly planes, would take a long time. But I think the political objective is some of this is also the art of the of what becomes possible. I would like nothing more than the outcome right. that Gary Kasparov outlines. You ask, what kind of war is this? I think we don't know yet. I think this is going to go on longer than people want to internalize because I don't see Putin surrendering so long as he is alive and in charge in Russia. And I don't see any near-term existential threat to Putin. And so I think that the question is, what, what are the Ukrainians prioritizing in taking back territory? Is it taking back southern Ukraine and kind of pushing back the yeah. line to where it was before February 22nd? Is it making a more daring attack into Crimea, which could raise you know Putin's escalation risk more. These are the kinds of things I think the administration is wrestling with. I do think, though, that for Putin, in some way, he's weathered the initial shock of the war. And frankly, a lot of those hundreds of thousands of Russians leaving was probably welcome to him. It's a release valve. Get all the, the liberals out, right? But I do think he's going to have more problem as time goes on, as the Russian economy has problems, as you've got multiple generations of men traumatized as you've got a shrinking economic pie and oligarchs competing over that. In a way, 
the medium term, you know, Putin might feel like in a strong position, he's created a war society there, a kind of fascistic war society that runs on, on oil money, and that continues to be available to him. But in the long term, he may face greater risks as some of the costs amount from the war. So I think what the administration is calibrating here is what is possible in terms of Ukrainian territorial gains. And this is, I'm sure, what Biden is talking to Zelensky about when, whenever they can connect. What should be prioritized, therefore, in those territorial gains? And how can we make time work against Putin instead of having it work for him? And I think the administration, if you just look at their body language and the weapon systems they're providing, I think they're a little wary of a dramatic move into Crimea right now, both in terms of the capability of the Ukrainians to do that, but also around the escalation risk. And look, at the end of the day, it's not our decision. It's the Ukrainians' decision. And they're going to want to fight for, for every life on every piece of, of territory that's theirs. But I do think what does matter is how are you prioritizing your tactics and your, your objectives in the kind of six-month increments that, that this war is run on? And I think the administration would be probably focused on southern Ukraine and erasing those Russian gains post-February 22nd. And just you have to make judgments as this thing goes along. Yeah. And the next big thing that the administration is focused on is this counteroffensive that the Ukrainians are supposed to be launching in the next few weeks, in the next month. I mean, this kind of spring counteroffensive is what the U.S. is now saying is going to be pretty significant, if not decisive, in terms of Ukraine's ability to take that momentum and take it essentially to the south and regain those really key cities that were taken by the Russians that are kind of along the Black Sea there. And that is what they're focusing on now, because there is a concern that if Russia does take Bakhmut, which is this grinding battle of attrition, which has become really symbolic at this point, then that could still be framed by Russia as a kind of victory. And it could change the narrative in the international community, kind of not against Ukraine, but but just taking that kind of momentum away from them. It would be the very, the first victory that Russia has had in quite some time. And so the U.S. right now is kind of doing everything they can to advise the Ukrainians behind the scenes of how not to let that happen. And of course, how to kind of shift away from that and focus more on a counteroffensive in the South, where they believe the cities really matter. One more point on this, that offensive, that Ukrainian counteroffensive, if the Russians are collapsing like a paper tiger, if the momentum is swinging dramatically in the Ukrainian favor, you know, you draw one lesson from that about how to keep applying pressure. If it doesn't work and they're just yes. grinding it out, everybody would like the crystal ball to know where this is going. But I think everybody's waiting to see what is the nature of the conflict come the end of the spring. All right. But let me just follow up a bit on just this point, because you guys are both putting it in pretty gentle terms. You know, it'll be the Ukrainians who must decide and what we're trying to advise them. I would have thought the body language is more like, we're totally for you. On the other hand, this can't keep going forever, as Ben just pointed out. It's well beyond even the capacity of everything that's being built. Here's your new and, and in some sense, you know, more modern kinds of equipment. You should go for it now. Don't be so worried about Bakhmut, even though it's become this big symbolic thing. Go to the south, try to grab some more land, and then maybe look for peace. I just want to ask if that is um, your sense of whether we're actually applying pressure in that regard, because if Gary has accurately stated, and I think he has, the sort of Ukrainian view, that's a real conflict. I don't think Zelensky would do that. I think that we're very sensitive to the fact that you can't ask a Ukrainian political leader to accept any Russian presence on Ukrainian territory. The question is, if there's a pause at some point, 
right? What is the way for Ukraine to be in the strongest possible position? There may not even be like a peace negotiation. It may just be everybody needs to take a breath here, you know? And where does Ukraine want to be and where do we want to see them at a point when there may just be a natural kind of pause to this thing? Not a negotiated agreement over their heads or anything like that. I think the idea of peace negotiations, I just don't see Russia agreeing to anything really meaningful at the table. But it may be a case where the war takes a pause on its own momentum. And where would you like to see Ukraine territorially at that point? You know, And I think that there, there are probably conversations that our military has with their military. There's obviously conversations at the political level about what do we care about the most? What are the most important objectives you know, to focus on in the near term? Knowing that, frankly, the idea of this all leading to a peace conference, it's hard to see how that is even possible. So Gary, can I turn back to you then? I think everyone agrees with your view of Putin. Ben said in the long run, but of course, you know, he's not going to live all that long. The question is, what will Russia look like after? I wanted to serve up to you. So Mark Milley, the, you know, our, our highest general, put it this way. And I just wonder if you agree, because this is on the question of, does Russia win? So Russia is now a global pariah. And the world remains inspired by Ukrainian bravery and resilience. In short, Russia has lost. They've lost strategically, operationally, and tactically. Do you think this has been a disaster for Russia as a modern state, even as things stand now? General Miller is wrong on every count. Okay. You don't have to say Russia is lost. They have to know they lost. Yeah. As of today, Putin doesn't think he's losing. But even more important, a Russian population doesn't believe it. Even if you give me one hour on Russian television, somehow you hack it and you put me in. I'm not sure I can convince my compatriots that they're losing because they look at the map. Obviously, there's plenty of lies. But still, you know, strategically saying they're lost, it's just going against the, their visuals. They still keep a lot of territories. And by the way, the Russian propaganda insists that they're not fighting war against Ukraine. They're fighting NATO. That explains why the war is so tough and we have to bring another 100,000, another 100,000. One more push, we can start winning. And it's just the Nazis again, right? They're fighting the Nazis. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's not what we think here. Maybe strategically long term, but this is not about long term. It's about winning the war this year. God forbid the war goes in next year. We'll start losing the political support in this country, in Europe, elections. So we all know it's not that easy. You cannot go indefinitely. But this is, I won't go back to the very important point, also made yeah. by General Milley a few times, and uh, Ben implies it in his presentation. I emphasize that that was a war on principles, on values. The wars on values do not end at negotiating table. It's absolute nonsense. The World War II has not ended at negotiating table. Another example from American history, the Civil War has not ended on negotiating table. Thanks God the Union forces were led by General Grant, not by General Milley. It was unconditional surrender. And that's what FDR said back in 1943 in Casablanca. And when FDR said unconditional surrender, remember the map. The Germans had territories from Volga to Atlantic Ocean. It, Italy was there. Japan was still strong. But it was unconditional surrender. You cannot negotiate with absolute evil. Any words about negotiating with Putin is basically giving him an upper hand. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate 
brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we dig up the dirt on the agave plant to find out the difference between tequila and mezcal. So first things first, tequila is a type of mezcal, much like bourbon is a type of whiskey. In general, tequilas are mezcals, but not all mezcals are tequilas. Allow me to explain. Tequila can only come from the blue agave plant in specific regions of Mexico, like the region of Jalisco, where the city of tequila is located. No coincidence there. Mezcal, however, can be made from many varieties of agave, specifically from the heart of the agave, known as the piña. The distillery process for tequila and mezcal is also different. Tequila is produced by steaming the blue agave and then distilling it in copper stills for a toasty, clean taste. On the other hand, mezcal, which appropriately means oven-cooked agave, is cooked in earthen pits with wood and charcoal before being distilled in clay pots. No wonder mezcal, which is typically consumed straight, has more of a smoky, earthy taste. Of course, the best way to get to know the differences between tequila and mezcal is to pick up a bottle of each from your Total Wine and More and pour hundreds of years of tradition right into your glass. Cheers! Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let me follow up briefly, though, on this point of value. So you've probably read Robert Kagan. He says, look, we think about values as distinct from interests, but really it's sort of both. If you actually follow through on the values aspect here, he conceptualizes it as something not simply about territory. I know that it's a maybe a third rail for you just to follow up in Russia. So the prospect for a kind of civil society in the wake of this war after Putin is so consolidated power, so viciously upped his capital as an autocrat. People in Russia must be aware of that change, no? Or you think they are indifferent to it, the ones who remain? Because this seems to me almost like a 1917 kind of event where the very people who would form some civil society in Russia after are all just gone. You know, if you want historical parallel, let's go back to 1943. This is Nazi Germany, 1943. So what do you expect to find out? Civil society? Opposition? Right. And also, by 1943, Hitler was in power for 10 years. And Dr. Goebbels couldn't even dream about the same technology to brainwash people. Putin is in power for 22 years. So it's very difficult, you know, to go through this bubble, the information bubble. What we need is just, you know, it's as happened before in Russian history, we need a clear demonstration that the war is lost or being lost. That's how things change in Russian history. If the war is winnable, people are willing to accept uh, losses. They can suffer. But if the war goes in the wrong direction, ah, that's the sign of trouble for any regime. So the only way, you know, just to, to endanger Putin's grip on power is to, to win the war. Liberation of Crimea by Ukrainian forces is the beginning of liberation of Russia from Putin's fascism. Crimea is a staple of Putin's mythology, and dictatorships cannot survive when the mythology is broken. And that's why, you know, we believe that helping Ukrainians winning the war is the, is the shortest cut to bring Russia back to the family of civilized nations. Can I just raise a point? about the decisive defeat of Russia being kind of the only way out of this conflict. 
There is a concern out there, and this is part of the reason why U.S. officials have kind of nudged Ukraine away from trying to retake Crimea, which has to do with stretching their capabilities a bit too thin, but it also has to do with this nuclear threat that Putin just keeps dangling and he keeps kind of saber rattling and holding this over the head of the West. And that is something that the U.S. certainly is not ignoring, right? I mean, they have many times over the last several months gone back and forth. Is this the moment when Putin might use a tactical nuclear weapon on the battlefield in Ukraine? Is Crimea kind of a bridge too far? Is that Putin's red line? These are the calculations that the U.S. is making, even when they think about what kinds of weapons that they're going to give Ukraine. A little bit less now because they've seen over the last year that the weapons they once thought were unthinkable that would cross all of Russia's red lines have not actually provoked the kind of response from Russia against NATO and the U.S. that they thought that it might. But This is part of the reason why I think there is a concern out there that if you decisively defeat a nuclear power, then that can go very wrong for the world. And so that's why there's been this kind of delicate dance around going up to Putin's red lines. What even are those red lines? And the Ukrainians are saying, look, the Russians are going to dangle this forever, right? This is how they do things. This is kind of the escalate to de-escalate kind of thing that they do where they threaten this and they dangle it because they know that it works, right? And so the question is, when do you start to move past that? And when do you realize that what the Ukrainians are saying is that this is going to be an issue forever? And so you need to just give us the weapons we need to decisively defeat them. You can't constantly be worried about the threat that Putin's going to actually do this. Quite a game of poker, right? We tape on the very day that Putin announced a withdrawal from the from the last nuclear treaty with the, the United States. I'd like to stick with the states a little bit and the U.S. domestic stage. So let's start with previous saber rattling by the Republican House that if they got in power, they were going to completely cut off aid to Ukraine and the like. So I don't think anyone's prepared for that exactly. But nevertheless, does a time come and soon where that is an additional hurdle that the administration just can't get past? What's the real world effect of that kind of you know ideological conflict? I think thus far, in terms of votes in Congress, what the administration would point to, right, is like, for all that talk, we've been able to get this stuff through Congress. Now, the other side of that coin is that there's a reason they rushed that giant package um, in December, because they knew the Republicans were coming in, and they know this will be harder with a House Republican majority. That said, you know, Mitch McConnell and other Republicans are big supporters of aid to Ukraine. To me, the bigger thing to watch is the presidential politics, because there, there you see where this is going. Because Trump is, you know, I'm going to end the war tomorrow. This never would have happened if I was there. Ron DeSantis, who I think is the main bellwether to watch here because he's the guy figuring out how do you figure out how to get elected in this crazy party. He said the other day, you know, he basically echoed the Marjorie Taylor Greene line about, well, we should be sending this to the border, not to to Ukraine. What's that mean exactly? I mean, that essentially, instead of sending assistance to Ukraine, we should be sending assistance to our own border because it's such a mess, Oh, oh right? the, his version of the wall, I see. Yeah, okay. and I think that is going to be the Republican message. Whatever the Hawks say, the Lindsey Graham say, like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, who are the two frontrunners, I think increasingly heading into 2024, are going to have a kind of nativist message on this thing. And, you know, that's going to be part of the backdrop of this whole strange war. 
which, by the way, I totally agree is about values, um, including yeah. in this country. Like, who, the, who do we support and what do we stand for in the world? But it does speak to the complexity here in 1943, because there is a lot of parallels there. But we knew that we as a country were prepared to march into Berlin, you know. And what is challenging about this war is we are not prepared to do that. Even the Ukrainians, I think. It's axiomatic that we won't do that, right? Well, but we don't know that. It may end up that. I mean, actually, we don't know where this war could go. We don't know that we're not going to get involved in this war. I just make the point that, like, part of the reason it's so complicated is this country is an all-in in that we're not fighting and that we have a major political party that's probably preparing to run against this war. And so what the administration wants, I think, is a lot of progress this year for this reason. They're managing three dimensions here. It doesn't even begin to describe it because they're trying to support Ukraine. They're trying to avoid a nuclear war and they're trying to keep America and the West united in support of Ukraine. I frankly think they've done you know, quite a good job and I've been willing to be critical of this administration on things. But like it's a tough tightrope they're walking and the American politics of it all is going to get a little more complicated. Now, if I was Biden, I would lean into that. And that's what he just did by going to Kiev. Fine. You want to be on the other team on this one? I'd own that. But that's complicated when you need Republican votes you know, for your packages. And Democratic votes. I mean, let's follow up for a second. So from a high level mark a year ago of 60 percent, there's still general support, but it's it's ebbed. It's at 48 percent. And the reason I said, I guess mistakenly, Ben, you would know much better than I that it's axiomatic that we won't have boots on the ground is I just think the opposition domestically would be so overwhelming. But what's the administration sense? of how long the goodwill lasts. It is ebbing. How are they trying to gauge the popular support as a strategic factor in the uh, actual military craft? So this is going to sound weird, but I think that this truly is something that President Biden just believes in so much that they are not necessarily as concerned about the public support aspect of the war unless it is seriously impacting the bottom line of Americans, right? So that is that is kind of what they're always tracking is like, what are gas prices at now? How is that going to affect Americans' perception maybe of the U.S. foreign policy? But when it comes to Ukraine, in all of my conversations with administration officials, even off the record, even on background, this kind of thing never really comes up. I mean, it's kind of taken for granted that the administration believes that this is a value that the American people agree with, the the fight of democracy versus autocracy, and therefore they don't really pay that much attention to polling about general U.S. public support for the war. I mean, certainly they're cognizant of it, but I just don't think that any of that is the driving factor here and that it's decisive in any way because – the administration feels that this, regardless, really is just the right thing to do. And that's what Biden has kind of made the center of his foreign policy. Natasha, I totally agree with that. The one caveat, I guess, wouldn't you say that the one place that they, it really matters is just getting the votes for the assistance packages? They may not be looking at polling, but they probably need another $50 billion supplemental at some point. And, and I noticed when Zelensky came, you know, he was very careful to go out of his way to thank Republicans. And you, you almost felt like Joe Biden the old horse trader in Congress was advising him, hey, you know, praise Mitch McConnell. You know, the one thing they can't afford to ignore is they need to get packages through Congress, you know? Yeah, yeah. But look, the dirty little secret here, I think, is that they don't actually think that's truly in danger because the mainstream Republicans, people like Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, 
they're on board with it. But the people on the fringe right are very loud. And yes, I mean, I think that there is a fear that they could perhaps maybe pull some GOP support away from the aid to Ukraine. But ultimately, the administration feels, I mean, in terms of my conversations with them, they seem to feel pretty confident that the GOP at large is not going to end the support for Ukraine. And let me follow up on this question with you, Gary, but shifting the regard to Europe, because you've been generally supportive of the U.S.'s stance. But my sense is that you see uh, NATO and Europe as being pulled along much less strong, almost at times pusillanimous. Is that right? How do you feel NATO is as a sort of steadfast partner in this overall battle? Now, first of all, let's be comment on the United States is that it's, I don't see there's any danger of this House voting in the next uh, 10 months against the package. It's not just Mitch McConnell and Gavin McCarthy. You look at uh, Michael McCall, the chair of Foreign Relations Committee, or uh, Congressman Rogers, the head of the Armed Service Committee. They're all on board. Actually, they are even more you know, aggressive, you know, demanding more to be sent. McCall in Kiev talks about F-16 and, and attackums. So again, let's not, you know, shift the blame there. Okay. But in 10 months, in the primary season, the value of these 25% of MAGA Republicans would be very different. So that's why it's in, in everybody's interest to make sure that the war is over by that time. And by the way, I'm not sure that in the primary season, they will not hear votes from the progressive Democrats. Some of them also may express their doubts about the package. Again, only in primary season. Right now, we should worry about it. That's such a great point because the whole weird dynamic in, in the Republicans now is how to get the MAGA voters. That's what everyone's thinking as they're encountering Trump. So that makes them have even relative more power. Now, speaking about Europe is that, look, NATO has been built or created in 1949 with one purpose, to save free Europe from Soviet invasion. What's happened since 1941, the border of free Europe moved from River Rhine to River Dnieper. But it's the same principle. Ukraine is single-handedly fighting the war. NATO has been, in theory, preparing for decades. So that's why it's very odd to look at the hesitations in some countries saying, oh, we need some weapons to be preserved. Preserved for what? So this is the war, the last war a Russian empire will hope for. And that's why Ukraine has to receive all weapons, all assistance we can find in our storage. So Europe, if you look at Eastern Europe, it's fully behind it. If you look at a percentage of GDP, countries like Estonia, Latvia, they're giving more to Ukraine than the United States. But obviously, America has more, you know, in store. So that's as we look at all sorts of weapons. But what we saw in Europe in the last couple of months, it's a dramatic shift towards, you know, Ukraine must win. From Ukraine should lose, Russia should win, to Ukraine must win. We're not yet there, but we're moving in this direction. Germany is, is changing. Actually, what helps Germany that the two fringes parties, if you look at the same, yep. you know, parallels with America, AFD, far right, like MAGA or far left, the Linky, they're basically being cut. And then you have Christian Democrats in opposition and three parties in coalition, free Democrats, liberals, the Green Party and social Democrats. They work you know, in concert. And they're upping their investment, Germany. Actually, Europe is doing much better than you can, you can expect it. So it's maybe it's still not enough, but but they're moving in this direction. And uh, I believe the German tanks, Leopard tanks that are, by the way, spread across Europe. Actually, Germany doesn't have the biggest number of tanks. I think the more in Poland or elsewhere because they sold them, you know, across Europe. I think the tanks will end up eventually in Ukraine, many of them, hundreds of them. So, again, it's a slow process, again, much slower than Ukrainians wanted, but definitely much faster than Putin expected. And what is still needed is American leadership. That's why I believe the 
Biden's surprise visit was it was just a phenomenal push because that's a demonstration. It's better than any statement. So I'm there, you know, and Ukraine must win. So I think we have more problems still within the administration, which you ignore the fact. Jake Sullivan and Bill Burns, I wouldn't call them appeasers, but those are members of the administration who have been arguing for so-called negotiated outcome for a long time, facing on the other end, Secretary Blinken and Secretary Austin, who were always pushed for the most radical solution. Speaking of World War III, by the way, and Ben's point, I gather when Biden went in, it was a surprise, right, to go to Poland, but I gather just as before it happened, we let Russia know because that would have started World War III had somebody been reckless when they found out. All right, let me switch because we only have a few minutes left. Many of you have expressed, if not pessimism, just kind of uncertainty how this war ever ends. Maybe we'll end with that, but I want to ask a little bit about the peace because the point about a war of attrition is it's a point, is it's devastating to a country's infrastructure, civil society. So let, just to look at Ukraine for a moment, we're told actually that both Kiev and Moscow, you know, cafe life and bon vivant, you know, European traditions continue, but they're ravaged. And I think the accounts are, it's you know, they're 1.8 billion GDP. It's going to take at least that much to restore them, not to mention building, you know, civil society and, and stable institutions and the like. What kind of challenge would remain if the actual, you know, war on the ground ends? And how does that happen? Actually remaking, you know, such a ravaged country that, you know, has toughed it out for however many years. I'm glad you framed the question this way, because first of all, we talk about the war ending. So long as Vladimir Putin is alive, I'm not sure what that means, because I don't believe that there's a peace negotiation that can yield an agreed-upon result. I agree with Garry Kasparov about that. I also think that even if Ukraine took back every inch of its territory, like Russia's still there, it's still a country of 140 million people governed by Vladimir Putin, th that's still kind of a state of war, will still exist. Like I just, yeah. So I think we have to change our way of thinking about this in a way that this war may just hopefully enter into a different phase in which Ukraine is more secure but we're kind of waiting for Russia to change. And in that regard, if it's not World War II, it could be the Cold War, right? It could be that Russia's loss becomes manifest because of a lot of factors, including th this war. That said, I think what is going to be required is a Ukraine that is fully integrated into the Western institutions. Including NATO. And including an enormous amount of reconstruction assistance and a kind of deliberate effort to make Ukraine a success. The test of our values is, are these people going to come out of the trauma that they've been through and reap the benefits of having chosen sovereignty and, and, and freedom and self-determination for themselves? But this is a multi-decade endeavor of the West, I think it's going to have to be, to integrate Ukraine and to not just rebuild it, but you know, help build a new and successful Ukraine. Now, whether that's happening with Putin launching periodic attacks or holding territory, that remains to be seen. But I think, again, we, we have to kind of get out of this notion that there might be a time when Putin accepts defeat at the negotiating table. I just, that's what I have trouble seeing. I agree with Ben. It's actually even, it could be even more radical in his answer. As long as Putin stays in power, the war will not end. Because war is the only algorithm that keeps Putin in power. 
It's both because dictator needs to demonstrate that he is uh, invincible and he is irreplaceable, but also it's a logic of the empire. Empire has to expand. Economically, it's, it's out of the question. War is the only rationale for, for this current form of Russian empire to continue its existence. So that's why the war will go on. Now, whether Putin can survive after liberation of Ukraine, I don't think so. The loss of Crimea for Putin and, of course, liberation of Crimea for Ukraine means the end of Putin's mythology, and he cannot survive it. Because the loss of the war on Ukrainian soil means that hundreds of thousands of angry men, armed men, will come back to Russia. If sanctions still in place, Russian economy will be in horrible shape. And this is the country, one of the greatest wealth disparities in, in the world. So we'll see many disturbances in the regions like Tatarstan, Bashkortostan, because they will not be willing to pay for Putin's adventure in Ukraine or, or, or elsewhere. And as long as the West keeps the sanctions in place, saying liberation, reparation, by the way, don't forget hundreds of billions of Russian funds being frozen. They have to be confiscated. And then, of course, criminal prosecution of those who committed these crimes and genocide. Because the moment the tribunal is being established, you will see the split between the regional bosses, who are a bunch of thugs and thieves, not war criminals, and the Putin's elite. So it's a hope that Russia will go through this turmoil. And eventually, as a citizen of Russia, I believe we have a chance to make this war the last war of Russian empire and start you know, bringing Russia back to the family of civilized nations. And as for Ukraine, I can say it will not take multi-decades. Ukraine is already a member of NATO de facto. I bet, bet you it's the strongest army in Europe now. And uh, at the end of the war, you know, they will be fully integrated in NATO. As for democracy there, it's more advanced than many countries that are already members of EU. So that's why it's about political will. And while it's there, I'm sure Ukraine will, will be quickly integrated. And that will send a very strong signal to many Russians seeing success of Ukraine and recognizing that either we have to go back to Europe or to become, you know, just hostages of Chinese imperialist policies. I think many in Russia who do not share European Western values by heart, they share them by stomach. And that's that's my hope that Russia will move in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I would just echo what, what Gary and Ben said, which is that, you know, when you speak to, for example, Polish officials and officials in Eastern Europe, the consensus, I mean, of course, given their historical memory and given what they know about Russia, is that this is not going to end as long as Putin is alive. And so the question then is, how do you defeat the Russian army so decisively that there is simply no way that Putin could do this again to Ukraine, right? Because that is the ultimate question, is whether you can push Russia out to such an extent that he can never attempt this kind of attack on Ukraine again. And the question is, which I outlined earlier, is that possible with a nuclear power? Is it possible to defeat them so decisively that their army and their military is essentially decimated? For a nuclear-armed state, that is an open question. There are a lot of officials out there who don't necessarily believe that that is a plausible endgame to this, that you weaken Russia to that extent because they do kind of always have this in their back pocket. So I think what officials now are grappling with is how do we support Ukraine for as long as possible with the weapons that they need to take back the most strategic cities and parts of the country and also try to push Russia back 
to a point where it's not completely destroyed as a country, but that it also won't be able to renew attacks and launch attacks on Ukraine again. It's a very delicate balance. And I think everyone right now is trying to figure out how to strike it. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Ben, Natasha, and Gary. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down the big legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Professor James Densley about his new report, Profiling Mass Shooters. Talking Feds is a completely independent production So if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. And if you're listening to this, Monday, February 27th, we will have our monthly Q&A session where all supporters can attend and ask me anything they like. It is always a lot of fun. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments, or questions for me to field in the live discussion with supporters that takes place once a month and will happen Monday, February 27th at 5 p.m. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McCardle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by David Littman, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Mm-hmm.